We're in this study called the geography of grace, and we've been looking at those places associated with the birth of Jesus. And so the question is like, where are you from? Where do you call home? I was born in a hospital on Miami Beach and grew up here in Miami. So this, in some ways, this feels like home to me. My parents were both from North Carolina, and every summer I spent uh, some time on a little ridge up in the western part of the state. And so, you know, that, that, that feels like home to me. And uh, a number of years ago, I had the privilege of going to the place in Scotland. It's a beautiful valley in the heartland of Scotland where my family who first came to this country immigrated from in 1683. And I look down in that valley and it's like, ah, this is why we, we love North Carolina. Maybe this is home. Well, what happened to you if you realized that um, you discovered you didn't come from where you thought you came from. You discovered that the family that raised you, that you thought was your family, has never been your family at all. That you are not the person that you were told you were when you were growing up. The reality that you discovered is that your birth mother was forced to, to give you up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you'll see her, na her here, her name is Nadine. Between 1945 and 1973, about 350,000 unmarried Canadian mothers were persuaded, coerced, or forced into giving their babies up for adoption. And that happened to Nadine, and it happened on Christmas Eve in 1952. Talk about a Christmas story. But the reality was this. Those adoption papers were never filed. She was just taken. And so as an adult woman, when she went on a hunt of like, who are my parents and who was my mother and where am I really from? There, there were no records she could track down. And the reality is the woman into whose arms she was put in 1952, she died a couple years after that. She fell sick. And so Nadine was passed along to yet another family relative. And so imagine the turning of relatives' homes and families' homes of this woman, not hers, and coming, passing through all of these places and wondering, well, who am I? And where did I come from? And what is my life? She didn't know who she was. And how could she find out? How could she untangle the story that was about her? For 44 years, she sought to find her way home. It's chronicled in her book entitled No Stone Unturned. And yes, actually, after those 44 years, she found her, her birth father. He'd already passed away or actually found out about him and her birth mother. And the reason I loved her story is I read it, I thought, ah, I identify with some of those feelings because all of those places that I would call home, it's like, ah, yeah, that's home, but that's not home. We're all looking for this connection to the place where we feel like we belong. We're not, a, not, not just for adopted people, but for those of us who grew up with our biological parents and even in healthy homes, there remains this what you could call universal feeling of estrangement. Where do I fit? Where do I belong? 
it's like there's a deep hunger for our true home. And by the way, some of us connect with this, maybe a nostalgia to our youth, the desire to go back to that Christmas when you were eight or 12 and to be in that place because somehow you, you felt that was there, closer to it. And by the way, I think Christmas can actually stir up these feelings. It makes us want to revisit a, a place or a time in our lives. And it's sort of like for me, this low grade fever, you know, it never bursts out really hard, but you, you always feel that it's there and we can try and drown it out. And you say, well, where is this coming from? Well, this is what this last Sunday in Advent is all about. And as I mentioned, we've called it the geography of grace. We've learned how those places in the birth of Jesus connect to these deep realities of our lives. And today, we journey far away as we heard from the Kaplans and our Advent reading to Egypt. Would you pray together with me? Father, thank you that we can come before you and Lord, there is in us this deep hunger and longing. And Lord, sometimes we mistake it for an experience we had years ago when we were children or we were gathered around the hearth of our family and the home where we grew up. We know, Father, that it goes even deeper than that. So I pray that in Jesus, you will show us how, what you made us for and how our life is to be found in you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite Psalms of David, Psalm 63, begins like this. You, God, or my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole body longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You read the psalm and you realize David has made this deep thirst and hunger in him. By the way, he's in the wilderness, but he's not just talking about physical thirst. He's talking about his soul being parched and empty, and he knows that only God can fill it. Nothing else in the world can touch it. It was like Jesus approaching that woman at the well and saying, oh yeah, you can draw more water here, and, but you know what? You're going to be thirsty again. You're going to be thirsty until you find the living water the living water. Now I bring this up because I think our thirst for God is one of the greatest things that we have going for us as human beings. The fact that we have this deep thirst for him. It's sort of like that homing beacon that we have in our world. It's sort of always drawing us back, always with this longing for God that can only be filled there. And it's the reminder that we're more than we're just molecules and matter, but there's something deeply spiritual about us and that this longing is to draw us to God. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, this is actually one of the greatest proofs for the reality that God exists and that he has a life for us. This is how he reasoned it out. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there's such a thing as sex. So if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation 
is that I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis said, this is a longing that every human being, it's like innate at birth, all of us feel the pull of this desire for place and identity and peace and joy. Now, by the way, we try to find that place. We don't want to feel this yearning. And so often what we do is we divert ourselves away from it. We often do this. And, and I wonder about that. You wonder about that? Why in our lives do we have to make ourselves so busy? I mean, you ask people today and you say, how, how are you? Oh, I'm busy. I'm so slammed. And you want to say, well, why do you have to be? And it's as if we have to make ourselves like this. We have to push ourselves and drive ourselves. We have to be this way. We are so uncomfortable with silence and solitude. We have to be on our devices all the time. It's why we can't or we won't really rest. And the reason is because that's when these feelings rise in us when we become the, aware of our deepest longings. And by the way, they're really what, what I would call aches, and aches to see our lives within a larger framework, like this story we're living in. We're actually living in a larger story. It's an ache for dignity to feel like as human beings that we're more than, as I was saying, just made up of molecules. It's an ache to know that we matter in the world. And perhaps it's the fear that we don't. So let's keep busy. We, we got to keep going. And so we become like sharks, right? Have you heard that? Sharks, they have to keep swimming because if they stop, they're going to die. And so if we keep moving, then we don't have to feel what we're missing. We don't have to live with these deep longings that we can't meet on our own. And so Christmas actually comes at a time when God says, hey, I wired you for this. And it comes at a time when our, our, we are given what our hearts have always longed for. And that's what I want to look, look with, at with you today. How we, how we find our way home. How our deepest longings are met in Jesus. Now our text seems like a strange interruption in the story of Jesus' birth. Right? As Matthew explains in his gospel, we learn from the moment Jesus is born, he's, he's in danger. His life is in danger. And here's why. Wise men, the magi as they're called, come from the east out of Persia in search of who they believe is going to be a very great person. And the reason is because who would be born under a moving of the celestial orbs, right, of, the, of a bright star, a sign? And these men are led to Israel. And they seek out local knowledge in Jerusalem, the capital city. And it's there they're told by scribes and religious leaders that Jesus is to be born in a little town called Bethlehem. It's only a few miles away. It's not far away. And Herod hears that they're searching for the birth of a king and his paranoia is stoked. And by the way, he has deep paranoia. In his life, he's killed family members actually to protect his throne. And the idea that a king might be born and usurp his power is frightening to him. So he, he commands those wise men, hey, tell us, you return to me and you tell me what you find, report back. And the wise men go and they find Jesus in Bethlehem, but they do not go back and tell Herod. And Herod, when he realizes this has happened, he orders the killing of all of the baby boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem. And this is what we are told. And when they had gone, that is the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape 
to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And by the way, if you heard this in, in that day and time, you'd go, oh, where is he going? And why isn't God protecting Jesus? Why does he have to go on the run so soon after being born? And why, of all places, do they have to go to Egypt? Because as soon as we hear the name of this place, we would remember how the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. This was not a happy place in their story. It was a nightmare. You could say Egypt was hell for them. You see, God did ultimately bring them out. But going down into Egypt meant enduring exile. That's it. Being forced to leave home. By the way, the Jewish people hated this so much in their story, they didn't even like talking about it. They didn't want to admit they had ever been there. But the, and the father does protect Jesus by sending an angel to warn Joseph. But Jesus had to go to Egypt. He had to go there to identify with us. He had to become a refugee. Jesus entered into exile. I think as you dial down into it, this is the feeling that we have as human beings. It's the reason for our longing. It's the reason for this deep sense of estrangement that we live with all, all the time. By the way, this is the reason that Nadine went in search for her lost parents and her identity. It's the reason David in the wilderness, he's, he's yearning with this hunger and thirst for God. It's the reason for our deepest longings. You want to know the source of your deepest longings? We're in exile from God, and we feel this. We're cut off from the source of life and joy and peace and security. And by the way, you may busy yourself out of feeling this, but there are moments, right, when you when you feel apathy or when you become discouraged or depressed or, or when there's a loss in your life, you're, you, you cannot keep this feeling and emotion away from yourself. It's there. You find, you lose somebody close to you and, and you just feel how forlorn this is to live as an exile. You see, this is why we have this feeling. And we actually think this, either life is a cruel joke and, and there's no meeting of this need in our world, or as C.S. Lewis says, there's gotta be a way for this longing to be met. And this is our human story from the beginning. Let me show you, show, show you why. God set the first human beings in the perfect place where they didn't know this longing that we know. This is what we're told in Genesis 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And by the way, he did all the work, right? Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to this sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there too. You see, there was no death. There was no fear. Their fear. No one felt, they didn't feel any shame there. There was, there was no loneliness. There was no insecurity. You know, I think about this as like, wow, I, I can't even imagine a world with, without those things. And actually walked with God in the cool of the day. Here, here was a place where there was only peace and only joy. We were home. We knew who we were in the presence of God. But the reality is those first people, they turned away from God. They, they rejected God in favor of going their own way. They rebelled against him. 
And that changed everything. Here's Genesis chapter three. Therefore the Lord God sent them out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Literally the dirt from which God made him. He had to spend his face in the dirt working. He did that. He drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and, and turned, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, our hunger is a, is a hunger for home. It's a hunger for Eden. We wouldn't feel this if at a time we didn't have it. To be back with the Father who loves us and to be secure in him. And so this is the first thing to get. It's why our hunger, as I said before, is one of the greatest things we have going for us because it points us to this reality. I don't know if we could, how much we get this. I came across a beautiful story recently of a woman named Kim Kate Cash Tate. You'll see a picture of her. And she writes about how she experienced this when she was a little child. There's Kim. And, and this longing that she had for her father when she was growing up, she explained it like this. It's one of the most vivid memories as a girl. Sitting on the edge of my bed, face angled toward the window, eyes, peel, eyes peeled for my daddy. My heart would race as a new set of headlights approached. Maybe that's him. Before sinking as the car passed into the distance. Still, I'd hold on to hope. From the time my parents divorced, I was four. I look forward to those planned outings with my dad. She would wonder as she put it, where is he? Did he forget about me? Daddy was always out and about, and all I could do was wait. Even as daylight turned to dusk, and dusk to night, tears would gather as I realized he wasn't coming. Again, more than once I thought, I must not really matter. He must not really love me. I was longing for a relationship with my father. I think all of us have felt that, right? With God. This, this is why Jesus went into exile. You know that when the Jewish people went to Egypt, there were no appearances of God, there were no prophets, and it must have felt like lost years. It was 375 years. Where, where is God? Did he forget me? Do I really matter to him? You see, Egypt was the opposite of Eden, this place of missing out. And we end up in Egypt because of our sin and our rebellion from God. And, and you're like, okay, okay, I, I, I felt this. I know what you're talking about. What do we do with this? Well, I think the thing we do this is, is we go and we create our own Edens. We try and create that life where we have those things, right? We think, oh man, when I land the right job or maybe when I meet the right person, when I make a lot of money, or maybe when I get to this status where I am, Maybe for you it's romantic love. Or maybe it's surrounding yourself with beautiful things. We can build this world for ourselves that we long for. And by the way, these, these things are not bad in themselves. They're not. But the problem is this. This longing is too deep to be touched by these things. Here's Blaise Pascal, the mathematician Christian I like so much. This is what he said. He said, a test which has gone on for so long without pause or change, really ought to convince us that the infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, 
with God himself. He wrote that in the 1600s. And we're still giving it the old college try. Can I, can I create that life that will, will give me what, fill that hole in my heart? And by the way, if you're trying to do it, hey, just go for it, right? That's what we tell ourselves. Hey, when I make partner or when I get published, when we have a baby, if I can buy that house. And again, these aren't bad things. They're just not the ultimate thing. But go for it, as I said, if you must. And it will likely be this. It will be just when you've reached that thing, when you have it, that you'll say, "Ah, that's not it either. That's not it either. That doesn't get me there. The Jewish people settled down in Egypt. And you know what they did? They tried to make it a home. We'll just live here. But it didn't work. It's sort of like bringing your wall art into the ICU unit. When your real desire should be, I want to get well. I want to get out of here. (laughs) Uh, A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of leading a retreat at my son-in-law's, for the men in my son-in-law's church in New Orleans. And a part of that was reading the stories of a bunch of men. And one of the stories I went back to read was the story of Anthony Bourdain. Likely you've heard of him because of the show Parts Unknown that he filmed for over a decade, there are 95 episodes of that show, and you look at this guy's life, you're like, it's amazing. Thailand and Korea and Iran, I mean, all over the world. He's, he's had adventure. I mean, this guy, if you talk about building a life, building an Eden, and the reality is this, how many people's lives have you envied through the years for what they had? Because you're like, oh, I think they have it. This person has it, right? Don't, don't tell me you haven't. Because it's tempting to do that, right? And so his, this guy has an amazing life on the outside to be wonderful. He did it. He made for himself a life that most of us couldn't even imagine. But this is what he said. He said, when I die, I will decidedly not be regretting missed opportunities for a good time. He did take those up. He said, my regrets will be more along the lines of a sad list of people hurt, people let down, assets wasted, and advantages squandered. Now, his is a complex story for sure. It's true. But track with people who have built the best Edens, and you're going to hear from them in their lives, it's still missing. It's still not there. And in the process, they bring harm to themselves and to other people. Or as the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, by the way, he, he pushed this as far as you could. He did the most that he could to build his own Eden, and this is what he had to say about it. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, he says, all was vanity. It was a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He said, in the end, all of these things we do to build our own Eden, we want that place. We do. We hunger for this place. They become traps for us. They draw us in, and then they don't deliver the joy and fulfillment that they promise. And we need to stay with Jesus here because what happens to him when he is exiled, this is what happens. Here's what Joseph did. He got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, old paranoid Herod actually died. Hallelujah. And Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they didn't try to make a home in Egypt. 
Notice that it says God brought them home. God called his son. Just as God originally called Israel out of Egypt, by the power of God, he also came for Jesus. And in the same way, he comes for each of us. Here's the prophet Isaiah. He says, for the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places. Isn't that beautiful? And her wilderness like Eden, he makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. God takes those desert places, the desert in which we live, where David is saying, I, I thirst for God. And he turns it into Eden on our behalf. The good news is God doesn't leave us where we are. He transforms our lives. And this is what we learn at, at Christmas. Do you know that God, uh, the Father we want, wants us more than we've ever wanted him? That he loves us more than we will ever love him? The story looks like the father of the prodigal son when he, he sees him way in a distance. He does what a, a man in Palestine would never do at that time. He takes off running to him, and we think, oh, the prodigal, oh, he's the one who's come home. But the reality is as he was coming home, he was preparing a speech to tell his dad he was going to work off all of the debt and make it right. You see, his story is, I'm going to save myself, but his father will have none of that. He wraps him up in his arms and has the best robe put on him. He calls for a feast. You see, the father brought him home. He removed his shame and he restored him completely. You see, here's why Jesus had to go into exile. He had to be where we are, where Israel had been, to know our story, to suffer what we have suffered, to know what we know, to experience a sense of dislocation in the world that we, we ourselves feel this is the story of his mission. From the very beginning, it's his story, right? First, in being born into our world, entering human flesh, meant sacrifice. This is what we're told in the Gospel of John. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So right away, Jesus comes into the world, and the very people who are supposed to recognize him, the Jewish people, refuse to accept him. He's mistreated and rejected. He's excluded at every turn. And if that weren't enough, he suffered an absolute complete exile from the Father on the cross. As he died, he called out in prayer, Father, Father, he calls. But he calls him God. And the Father is silent. And, you know, I think this is an exile that we can't even begin to appreciate. The kind of oneness Jesus and the Father and the Spirit have is now completely broken. Why did he do this? Jesus suffered exile from the Father so that he could bring you home, so that you would never doubt that God loves you and cares for you, that God is pursuing you, and that God is for you. Do you know that you're beloved of God? You see, I think the greatest obstacle to our joy it's to be found in us. It's, it's not God. In the ways we seek life a part of him. The quote at the end of our text for today comes from the prophet Hosea. He, listen to the beautiful words. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That's the quote we heard. But listen to what it says. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. 
So here God frees them, he redeems them, and you can, it's like you can hear the grief of the father. I love my son, but they've just taken off and run from me. Now listen to the tenderness of God in the verses that follow. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. And that visual, I mean, so powerful, but they, they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. In other words, you couldn't lead anyone more lovingly than that. To them, I was like one who, who lifts a child up to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. I mean, isn't it amazing how God speaks of his love for his people, how he's, he's taken care of them, but they don't, they don't see that. They don't see God doing that. He's healed them and restored them. They don't recognize that. They just, the more he called, the more they went away from him. I mean, as I read this text, I was thinking back when I was in New Orleans, that's where my son-in-law and daughter live. My grandchildren are there. And so I'm gonna make, I'm gonna show you a shameless picture of my grandchildren this morning. This is what they look like. There's Ben and Molly, right? And so, man, I, I get to hold them. I get to build, I, we built a castle with blocks on the floor in their family room together. We did all of these things, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, this is how God actually views each of us. And even when he rescues us, we, we don't recognize that. When he, when he heals us, we don't, we don't receive that. We don't see this. You see, we have no idea. Just like they have no idea how their parents are caring for them. This is the tender heart of God toward you. And our tendency is just to go away from God and failing to see that he is the one who's taking care of us. And guess what God does in the midst of this? It's why he gives the prophecy to Hosea. He's still pursuing them. He's still pursuing them. He's still pursuing you and me. I think this is what Christmas is all about. It's about God finding you and sending Jesus to reveal to you that he loves you and he is with you and you finding peace in him and finally being to the place where, you know what, home is it's not Miami for me. I love Miami. I'm so glad I'm here. Home is not Scotland. It's beautiful there. That's not my home. My home is, is in him. And you find that peace. You're reconciled to him through the death of Jesus. And by the way, you know, when Jesus, the exile of the cross, you know that most people lived on the cross for days? It didn't kill him right away. How does Jesus die just in one day on the cross? I don't think it's because of the physical realities of his death. It's because at that moment, he went into such exile that it literally it broke his heart. It broke his heart so that God could have fellowship with us that would, be, that would be unbroken. We could know that we're his. And so here in Jesus, we, we find this invitation. You know, you're, welcome, you're always allowed to be home. You'll be loved at home in God and turning away from our own Edens to respond to that grace. And that's the reality is God is always telling us that we can find a place of belonging in him. I want to return to Kim Cash Tate's story. That little girl grew up and she saw her father less and less. And before long, the visits ended, leaving a huge hole in her heart. There was nobody who was really there for her. And what did it matter anyway? After a while, you're just like, I'm gonna just go out and live my life, do things, whatever I wanna do. And it led her to doing that in her life. 
She lived the life on her own terms. She went through college and law school and she built that life. And what she says is she was absolutely miserable. She knew there was a missing piece. Then one day she fell in love. After she fell in love with a guy named Bill, he invited her to church. And this is what she said. For the first time I heard the true gospel preached and it rocked me. Finally, I understood why Jesus died on that cross. Finally, I saw myself as God saw me, a sinner in need of redemption. I asked God to forgive me, and I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It meant relationship, close relationship. Yet it was hard to fathom. She couldn't believe this, couldn't imagine. What an unsurpassable gift for that little girl staring out the window, waiting for her dad, and wondering if she really mattered. My Abba Father was letting me know that I could enjoy an intimate relationship with him forever. Kim was home. He was peace. He was that hole left in her heart that was filled by the loving Father who came for her in Christ. She knew who she was, and peace came. Maybe we wonder if God cares for us. We know ourselves all too well. We know the mess that we are. (laughs) And God knows this. And so what does he do? He shows up to tell us that he loves us. And what is our part in this? It's to rest in this by faith. To enjoy the gifts of God. To welcome them. To let, let, like that prodigal son, he didn't stop his father and say, no, 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 I'm going to make it right. At some point, he just had to let his father hug him. And welcome him home and love him like nothing had ever happened. Would you pray together with me? Father, thank you for Christmas. And Lord, it is true, we do so much to run from the longings of our own heart to act like they're not there or they're not real. And yet there's so many things we're doing in our lives, Lord, to have those, that heart need met, to fill what really is an infinite abyss that can only be filled by you, our infinite God. And so, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that wherever we are, however broken we feel, however far away we feel, you come running to us. You're the one who brings us home. And Father, I pray this Christmas that we would rejoice that we have a loving Father, that we can know who we are in you and Father, that we can, we can enjoy your peace. We can live without shame and without fear because you've loved us in Christ. And we thank you and we pray in his name. Amen.